listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. It's good to be here together like this. We've got some ambient lighting, which is amazing, and so um, setting the mood. Isn't it a privilege to gather together like this? I mean, seriously, like I, I know that we, we say we say this kind of thing all the time, but I'm I'm always struck by what a gift it is to gather like this. And I never, ever, ever want to take that for granted. Like, I, I think we do. Oh, that's empty. I grab it. So, I, One time there was a baby that started rolling towards me in here when I was preaching. It was the Lucas's baby. It was amazing. So that water bottle's nothing. But I, I just... We get to come together as the people of God, the redeemed people of God. And we get to sit together under the instruction of the Holy Spirit and grow together as a family. Like that is such an incredible gift. It's such a beautiful thing. And I think I'm more appreciative of that than ever with just two sermons remaining uh, here at Red Tree. And um, so I I just, I want to I just want to acknowledge that, like it's good to be here. It's good. And can I also just say, I, I'm, I'm just thankful to be upright right now. We, uh, we, we, St. Louis has seen fit to, uh, to send us off to India with influenza B. And so my kids are like wrecked with the flu and uh, it, it thankfully hasn't spread yet to myself or to Marin. And so um, it's just, it's good to be here. It's good to be standing upright. It's good to be able to proclaim the word of God. It's good to be with you this morning, and, uh, and, and so I'm excited. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that and turn to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 2. Um, as always, if you don't have a Bible, we have copies strewn throughout the room. You can uh, grab one of those, use that during our time. Bring it home with you if you don't own a copy of the Scriptures. We'd love to give you that gift. Um, so we're continuing this study in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 23 through 28 this morning. And so go ahead and just get situated in that. And while you're doing that, um, here's what I want to do. I I promise you, I had intended not to do this, but I was thinking about it this week. I was thinking about how many of you are praying for us and how you have uh, expressed a desire to pray specifically for us. And so I just wanted to get to the sermon, but I think it's beneficial if I spend just a couple minutes and let you know kind of what's going on with the transition with our family so you know how to be praying for us. And so I'll, I'll just take a, a couple minutes. And, and, and let me start by saying this. I'll make this general statement. It has been nothing short of amazing to watch God go before us in this season. And I'm, I'm not just saying that. Um, it's literally been incredible. From God's provision for us, even meeting needs that we didn't even know we had. Like before we knew they were needs, God has met certain needs. To the impact that He's allowing us to have on other churches in the area, it's all just been incredible. It's, 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 been, it's been really cool, that last aspect, to be able to go, because you know, churches have asked me. I was out in Washington, Missouri last Sunday. I preached at a number of different churches, and um, it, they, they asked me to come in and talk about Mumbai. And so I just kind of do my, my deal where I, I use that as an opportunity to come in and talk about more of a 
a gospel-centered motivation for mission in our lives. And so I come in and just start preaching against idols like comfort and safety and autonomy and things like that. For sure, none of these churches think I'm very fun at parties. But I, 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 I mean, it's like I got one shot. I come in and I figure I'm a short timer. I can say what I want. But it's been so good because I desperately want to see a passion for the glory of God pervade the American church. I I desperately want to see that. Like if the American church, if there's like a sense of revival that comes to this American Christian culture we've sort of created, if God wakes this church up, it's incredible the impact that it'll have around the world. And so I'm figuring I go into these churches and so we just we we just come at that and it's been good to see God use that. And and then beyond that, God's provision has been incredible. Um, my, My business visa was approved by the Indian government a couple of weeks ago. That that was supposed to be complicated and take a long time, and it got approved in like four days. Uh, and so God was good in, in that. We, we found a flat in Mumbai, uh, and, and we're able to negotiate a lease on that, and we take possession of that March 1st. And um, praise God, we, we've successfully raised all the money that we need for our upfront costs to move to Mumbai and get established uh, there. In fact, there were a bunch of other financial needs in in transitioning that we hadn't even considered. But the good news is God considered them and made sure that we had uh, the resources to cover those costs. Uh, Now, we we are still looking for monthly supporters to meet our day-to-day financial needs while we're in Mumbai. Um, We're a little short on that, but we trust that God's going to provide that as He's provided everything. And then beyond financial provision, it's been so cool. Like God has allowed us to to even now begin creating relationships, uh, both with Indian nationals and with American missionaries in Mumbai. And that's been really cool. I've made a friend of just a business guy in Mumbai that I met on my last trip. And, and that was amazing. And then our kids have been able to connect with some of the kids who are living there on the mission field with some of the American kids and even started Skyping with them. And so it's just been really cool to see God go before us and provide for some of those things. Literally been point by point, story by story of the faithfulness of God as we've moved towards our departure uh, date. Now, we haven't yet sold our house, uh, so if you can continue to pray for that. If you don't want to pray for that, you can buy it if you want. Um, but um, <laughs> really need a buyer for, for our house. And so if you could pray for that, that would be amazing. Um, and, and then let me, let, let me do this too. I, I want to put a couple of things on your radar that might already be on your radar, but just as we kind of move towards our departure, there, there's a, I'm sure you're sick of hearing about this now, but there's a benefit concert tonight that's going to happen. It'll be held at the Rock Church in Brentwood, not the one here in West County, but the one in Brentwood. And we'd love for you to be there. I know the weather's dicey. It's supposed to be good tonight. We'd love for you to be a part of that to celebrate the work that's happening. Logan and Travis, both of whom you know, um, are, are going to be there leading music. So Logan's going to do a worship set. And then Logan and Travis together are going to just sing cover songs. And so uh, that that is going to be every bit as amazing as it sounds like it's going to be because those guys are incredible, uh, incredible musicians. And we'd love for you to be there. Uh, And then a couple of dates maybe for you to remember here at Red Tree. Um, I'll be preaching my last Sunday, at least for maybe a year and a half, if you guys let me come back summer of 2019 and preach. Um, Last Sunday on uh, preaching on Sunday 
um, February 25th. Um, Comstock will actually be hanging this morning, uh, that, that morning and leading worship. So we're getting the old band back together for that Sunday morning. It'll be, a, it'll be a fun time. And then Sunday, March 4th, I believe we have a, we have a shindig here at Crestview with a little potluck. Uh, so it's church life. You've got to send us out with a potluck. So we'd love, love for you to be a part of that. And then we're actually rolling out of St. Louis on, uh, on Wednesday, March the 7th. So that's all of that. Sound good? Isn't that crazy to think about? We announced this a year ago, and time flies. And so, all right, that's enough of all that. Now, let's get to the good stuff. I, I'm going uh, to go ahead and pray uh, for our time together in God's Word, and then we'll jump into what He has for us. I, I'd invite you to pray with me, but can I just ask you to pray for me as I'm praying? Um, I, I just, you know, with the sickness in our house and all the transitional stuff going on in Mumbai, and, and just the weirdness. I don't preach as much as I have been. It's just, I feel disjointed this morning, and I just want to give whatever is here, I just want to give to the Lord and ask Him to just do what He does. And so would you just agree to sort of pray for that this morning, and let's go to Him before we jump in. Father, we love You. Um, God, we're so thankful that we have redemption in your son jesus god that fact alone is amazing it's awe-inspiring god the fact that we can come to this place and worship you is testimony to the goodness and the sufficiency of jesus christ god the fact that we who were separated and alienated from you god and hostile even towards you god you have made us righteous because of your son Jesus. Thank you for that. God, I pray that you would woo and draw our hearts back to you this morning. There are ways, me included, me especially, God, that we don't believe the gospel practically um, in our lives, God. Ways that we operate outside of it. There are ways that we are given towards idolatry, God. I just pray that you would woo us back this morning, God. Give us a picture for how awesome you are, how good you are, how completely sovereign and holy you are, God, that we would just want nothing but you, that we would want nothing but you. So God, lift Jesus high this morning as we look at this text in the gospel of Mark, we ask in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're wrapping up chapter 2 this morning, and um, it's a really interesting discussion. In fact, it's a little tricky, I think. Uh, and, and here's why that is. So this, this section, our text this morning, uh, is, is, is a part of what, what's known as what like, theologians call the religious controversies. So these, these, these discussions, these interactions, span all of chapter 2 of Mark, and then the first six verses of chapter 3. Uh, and we're, we're kind of in point, point 4 of 5 of these religious controversies. And, and religious controversies is just a fancy way of saying the, these are issues over which Jesus... And the religious leaders of the day were butting heads. Not a headbutting contest you win, by the way, ever. And can I just say this? I was thinking, I was thinking about it this morning. For some of you, that what I just said might be the only thing you need to hear this morning. It, it really might be. Like, you don't win headbutting contests with Jesus. If you are butting heads with Jesus over something, stop it. Because you're not going to win. 
right? This is a total aside, I know, but just think about this for a second in the, in the context of our passage. These religious leaders who were <coughs> opposing Jesus, they thought they were doing what was right. You ever think about that? When, when you think about the Pharisees, did you consider that? You, they, I, I know we love the bust on these guys, but they genuinely, genuinely thought that they were doing what was right. They thought the system that they were promoting would bring glory to God and would, would lift the curse. Yes, they were butting heads with Jesus, but they actually thought what they were doing was right. They were just blind, you see. They were blind to the truth. Now, I was super convicted this week, and so you know how I roll. I will submit this to you for your reflection. Here's my conviction this week. There are a lot of ways where we are thumbing our noses at Jesus and we are butting heads with Him over things we know are wrong. That's something to think about. These guys were blind. We've been given sight there are ways, listen, it's easy to be like, oh, those crazy Pharisees, while we're over here willingly and with eyes wide open, giving ourselves to idolatry that we know dishonors God and is a poor reflection of Him in the world. That's definitely something for us to consider. Anyway, that's not the message. Five interactions, Right? Five interactions here, uh, you, you can call them cultural collisions, if, 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 if you like, that happen between Jesus and the religious leaders. And although each one of them bring up a specific issue like the Sabbath this morning, I, I believe they are all meant to communicate one major overarching principle. And so, can, can I just say, it feels a little awkward to deal with these interactions one at a time and not deal with the overarching principle that I believe Mark is driving us to. By the way, let me say, r- related to this, we need to remember Mark's writing style and what he's trying to accomplish through some of his writing techniques. I know we've talked about this at the beginning of Mark, but just think about this for a moment. Mark presents these five interactions like they're happening in succession one after the other, but that's not the case. At least some of these interactions happened at different times. Now, the reason he lays them out like this is because he isn't primarily concerned with presenting a historical timeline for us. His primary concern is presenting these accounts in such a way that show us the character and the nature of Jesus and would give us an accurate picture of the growing Uh, tension or intensity that existed between Jesus and the Pharisees. So it it feels a little awkward to just deal with this one section of text and then sort of talk to you about the Sabbath and how that applies to our lives. I think we should talk some about that for sure, but not at the expense of digging down on the main point of the entire chunk of Scripture that we see here. So having said all of that, here's what I think I want to do. Uh, and and I'm, again, I'm just praying that this doesn't come across as disjointed. I, I, I want to walk through these five interactions and show you this building tension. 
And, and I, I think we'll see very clearly in this the trajectory to the cross. I mean, these guys really, really wanted to kill Jesus by the end of these interactions. And so we're, we're going to look at that progression. And then, internal to that discussion, when we get to it, I want to spend a few minutes talking about the Sabbath itself because Jesus puts the Sabbath in its proper context in this text, sort of giving us a gospel picture of it. And, and, and I think that's super helpful for us to know. And then at the end, I want to save some time and make sure we dig down on the overarching message that I believe Mark is driving us to here. So we'll take some time to talk gospel implications for our lives. Does that, does that sound fair? Good? Okay. So let's just walk through these then. Uh, the first interaction begins in Mark 2.1 where Jesus heals this, this paralytic. I, I'm just going to, by the way, the ones that we've already preached through, I'm just going to recap. We're not going to read them again, but we will read our full text uh, this morning when we get to it. And then, uh, Sam, I promise I'm just going to allude to the last interaction because Sam's going to do a, a far better job than I ever could preaching that interaction uh, next week. And so we'll just allude to that. Okay, so starting in Mark 2.1, you remember the paralytic, you'll remember the scene Jesus was in a home and he's preaching and this home became so crowded that no one else could fit in the house it says the text says you can even get more people in the doorway so this group of guys who, who had brought their friend to be healed they had to climb up on the roof above where Jesus is standing in the house break a hole in the roof and lower their buddy down on his mat right and so Jesus looks at these guys who bring the paralytic, and he looks at the faith that they've displayed in doing this, and he forgives the paralytic's sins. It's fascinating, by the way, that, that it was the faith of the friends that moved the heart of Jesus to heal this man. I believe that's an important note about the beauty and the necessity of community in our lives, but that's a separate discussion. And so in that scene, the religious leaders are there, and they immediately start griping. They start griping. Who, who does this guy think he is? He can't forgive people's sins. Now, what's interesting, they don't actually confront Jesus at this point. They were just talking amongst themselves, but Jesus knew what they were saying and what they were feeling. He knew that they were questioning his authority, and so he confronted them. And that's the first interaction that we see. Then you have Jesus calling Levi, starting in Mark 2.13. You know the story, Jesus walking along and he finds Levi working in his booth collecting taxes from the people and he looks at Levi and very simply he says, follow me. And just like that, Levi gets up, leaves his booth behind and follows Jesus. From there, remember they go to Levi's home for a meal and the religious leaders follow along. So once again, they're there in that scene where they accuse Jesus of eating with sinners and tax collectors, which, of course, was true. It's true. It's exactly what Jesus was doing. And so Jesus responds to them famously, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now get this, they, they, they progress from just griping about Jesus amongst themselves to now directly questioning Jesus' integrity because he's hanging out with the 
quote-unquote unsavory folk. In both cases, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders and tensions continue to rise. Now in Mark 2.18, the question comes up about fasting. The religious leaders point to the Pharisees. They point to John's followers who were fasting. And they ask Jesus, why don't your disciples fast like all these other guys fast? Now get this. They're they're not just questioning Jesus' integrity. Now they're publicly questioning his leadership. They're like, good grief, man. It's bad enough that you're blowing your integrity by hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. But now look at your followers. They don't even fast. To which Jesus responds beautifully. And here's where Jesus starts redefining things really clearly. He says this. He says, look, my people don't need to fast because I'm with them. There will come a time when I won't be with them when they can and should fast. But that time is not now. I'm with my people. And then in clarifying that, Jesus makes a fascinating statement. Now, Here's where we really, really need to tune in because he gets to the main point, I think, in these next verses of all of these five interactions. The main point. This is the common thread that weaves itself through all of these collisions between Jesus and the religious leaders. I know Sam preached on this last weekend, but I just want to remind us about what Jesus says in verses 21 and 22. Here's what he says. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now we're going to come back to this idea at the end of our time and allow that principle to wrap up our conversation. But first, let's get to the next two interactions. We'll read this morning's in its, entire, in its entirety, and then I'll mention, uh, I'll mention the last one briefly because, again, Sam will handle that next weekend. So here's our text this morning, 23 through 28. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees, there they are again, were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also he gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, think about about the scene here in our progression. Jesus and his disciples, they're they're walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath, which would have run from, from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. That would have been the Sabbath. And as they're walking, his disciples... they begin plucking some heads of grain for food. And the Pharisees lose their minds, which is what they do. They step up their accusations against Jesus. You see, a, a, a rabbi would have been held responsible for the behavior 
of his disciples. So although the accusation sounds like it's being thrown at the disciples, it's really meant for Jesus. And the accusation is very, very serious. They're accusing Jesus of breaking the law, specifically of breaking the fourth commandment, which is remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, we know, because we, we sit here with a much fuller picture, we know that that accusation is beyond insane, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, right? I mean, Matthew 5, 17, in his own words of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. That's what Jesus has come to do. And so we know that it's an absurd accusation. But again, listen, in the minds of the Pharisees, they think that this is a legitimate accusation. So Jesus in a very awesome Jesus way, he responds by, by, by essentially saying, have you guys ever read the Bible? That's basically the response. Have you ever read the Bible? Which is a really cutting thing to ask guys who are supposed to be experts in, in the law. And G- Jesus says, have you ever read what David did? And then he references this time when David and his men ate the showbread off the table in the holy place in 1 Samuel 21. And then Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. All right, now, let's hit pause in our look at these interactions And let's talk about this issue of the Sabbath for just a moment because Jesus puts it in its proper context for us. See, the Pharisees had taken something provided by God to be a blessing, to bring healing, to bring joy, to spur on worship of God, and they turned that thing into a burden on the people. God commanded that we remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, but He wasn't overly specific on what keeping the Sabbath holy looks like. I mean, we know because Moses, as we went, filled in some context for us. And so in Exodus 20, we, we, we know that you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. And we know from Exodus 34 that this applies even during times of sowing and reaping in the fields, which we know is the time. That's the busy season for an agricultural people, is it not? That's busy season. By the way, probably a good word for all of us to remember who are like, you know, I, I would totally rest. I totally Sabbath, but it's a really busy season at work right now. Nah, you still need to rest, right? You still need to rest. It still applies to you. So we know those couple of things. We also know that God takes this really, really, really seriously because there was this guy in Numbers 15. I know you guys have probably memorized large parts of the book of Numbers, but in Numbers 15, you've got this guy who's going out and he's collecting sticks. He's gathering up sticks on the Sabbath. God, he gets caught. God told, tells Moses to kill that guy. They're like, uh, here's how we're going to deal with it. Take him out and stone him to death. If we we still played by these rules, that would probably change your tune on the busy season of work you have, right? God's like, oh, you're going to answer emails on your day off? You sure about that? Um, Nope, I'm not sure about that. After reading Numbers 15, 
Answering emails is like the digital version of collecting sticks. I'm not going there, right? So those are the things we know. That's what we know. But there's a lot of room for interpretation as to what keeping the Sabbath holy looks like. Now, this is where the Pharisees come in and they do their Pharisee thing. See, the Pharisees were good at taking a law that God had given His people and in an effort to make sure that that law never, ever, ever gets broken, they would put up laws around that law to protect that law. That's what they did. They would establish laws as a protection around that core law to make sure that that law never, ever, ever got broken. So now all of a sudden, it's not just keep the Sabbath day holy, it's here are the dozens and dozens of do's and don'ts about what it means to keep that Sabbath day holy. But those things didn't come from God, they came from man. So what Jesus does, it's beautiful. He returns the Sabbath to the people. He puts it back in its proper context. Watch what he does here. It's actually absolutely beautiful. First, he roots the Sabbath as an ordinance in creation. Let's just think about this for just a moment. His language is very specific. He says the Sabbath was, what does he say? Made. The Sabbath was made. It was created for man. Remember that the Sabbath was rooted in the creation narrative itself. God Himself took time to rest. And then He instituted that principle as a blessing for His people. That was its intention, as a blessing. But this is, you see, the nature of what sin does with everything. It takes something good that was meant for the worship of God and it bends that thing to the worship of something else. That's what sin does. And what we see here is that man has taken what was given to bring rest and peace and joy and it's been turned to become a burden, which is the opposite of God's intention. That's what sin does. And everybody look up here. You and I do it all the time. We do this all the time. Where we take things that have been given to us by God for our joy and to increase our worship of Him and we elevate those things above God Himself. We do it all the time. Jesus reorients us here. Man doesn't exist for the Sabbath. The Sabbath exists for man, you, you, don't, you don't need to make laws to protect the Sabbath. You need to engage in Sabbath rest as a protection for your soul. I'm going to say that again because if you want a proper context on the Sabbath, that's it. You don't need to make and create rules and laws to protect the Sabbath. It doesn't need protecting. You need to engage in Sabbath rest as a protection for your soul. Such a good reminder for us. Now, unpause. We have this last interaction, okay? That was the fourth. This is the fifth. And I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to flesh this out. Sam will take care of it next week. But I do want to see this progression all the way to the end. This interaction also takes place on the Sabbath. Jesus is in the temple, and as usual, the Pharisees are there, and they're watching him, looking to question or trap him 
Here's what's interesting, though, about this interaction. They don't get to accuse Jesus of anything. They don't get to accuse him of anything. He beats them to the punch. He uses this situation of this guy's withered hand to ask the Pharisees this question, and the question's brilliant. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? And how do they respond to Jesus? They didn't. <laughs> they didn't. They're like, um, I no idea. Which is fascinating because it's a really simple question. It's a simple question. Like that question makes sense to a five-year-old. It just does. Hey, should you do good or bad on the Sabbath? Five-year-old's like, um, good, duh. Like that's easy. And yet... It's confounding this group of experts in the law. They can't answer the question. And so Jesus heals this man, and then it says that the Pharisees begin plotting to destroy him just as he intended, by the way. Just as he intended. So that's this progression that we see in these series of interactions, these religious controversies as it were between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, I want to circle back to verses 21 and 22. And we're almost done. I promise. I, I, want, I, want, I want you to remember me as a guy who preached short sermons when I leave. <laughs> Next one won't be short. That is funny. Remember what Jesus said in verses 21 and 22. And I want, to, I want to land on this main idea that I really think that Jesus, through Mark's pen, is driving us toward. Let me read the verses again so they're fresh on our minds. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine, wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine burst, will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now get this, and we're done. You don't sew a patch of new cloth on an old garment. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. What's the point of that? Here's the point. God is doing something new. God's doing something new. Listen, Jesus hasn't come to fix what's broken with the religious system of the day. He's come to make all things new. It's different. And we don't get that a lot of times. We're like, oh, the world's broken and Jesus came to fix it. Be sure that Jesus will repair and restore and redeem. But Jesus just didn't come to fix a broken system. He came to make all things new. And that is infinitely different. See the difference? We've been saying all along that, that, that the kingdom breaks your expectations of who God is and how we relate to Him. We know that the kingdom has come as Jesus begins His ministry. That's what He says in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
That is the most relevant thing we could ever hope to close our time with this morning. That is the most relevant thing I could ever leave you with today is this idea that God is doing a new thing and we're called to repent and believe that thing. To be reminded that Jesus didn't come just to fix what was broken in our lives. He came to make all things new, to give us new life. Just think about this for a moment. The religious leaders of the day were defining righteousness by their adherence to the law, mostly laws that they had created themselves. Jesus is showing them in all of these interactions that righteousness deals with something entirely different. He's driving them to an understanding that He is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. And the reason that's such a good word for us is because we do this kind of thing all the time. We do this kind of thing all the time. We do it in big ways. We do it in small and subtle ways where we believe that we can attain or sustain a righteousness of our own. And this reminds us that our righteousness is found in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. The truth is that the righteousness of Jesus on your behalf has forever freed you from the constant burden of having to convince yourself that you are righteous. It's just true. The truth is, is that we no longer have to work to promote our own righteousness because we've been welcomed to rest in the gracious gift of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the one who is Lord even of the Sabbath. If we're going to be honest this morning, there are ways that we're living outside of the plans and desires that God has for us. That's a way to think about idolatry. Right? God says, here's what I have for you. Here's what it looks like to be in me and abide in me and walk with me. And there are ways that we step outside of that, of those plans and designs. That's a way that you can define our idolatry. It's, it's living outside of the gospel, if you will. Jesus is speaking newness into that. That's all of us we do that. And He's speaking newness into that. He's speaking life into that. He's telling us, hey, there's something infinitely better. Infinitely better. See, this is where we come full circle back to this headbutting that we do so much with Jesus. As Jesus speaks newness and life into our idolatry and unbelief. Are we going to harden our hearts in response to His call? Or are we going to repent and believe the Gospel? Because we see that the kingdom is at hand. I think one of the things that made the Pharisees so mad in these interactions, like you have this call of Levi. Just think about it. Levi's a tax collector, right? He's a tax collector. So his job is inherently oppressive to the people. And, you're, and right now you're like, mm-hmm, it's tax time. IRS, yes, oppressive to the people. But that's not even how taxes worked back then. He was ripping everybody off. And you may think our government's doing that to you. I don't know how much is taken out of your paycheck, but the reality is that Levi was for sure ripping people off. He was living out a system of oppression. 
You have the Pharisees who were living out a system of oppression. Both were blind. Jesus walks up in the presence of the Pharisees and he looks at Levi and he's like, you, follow me. And he leaves everything and follows Jesus. He speaks newness of life into Levi and Levi follows Jesus. And you have the Pharisees who were also living out this oppressive structure but are completely blind and their hearts just get hardened and hardened and hardened towards Jesus to the point they say, how do we destroy Him? That's the exact same choice that lies before us even when we look at the minutia of our day-to-day idolatry, is it not? Uh, Even to the big things. There are big ways that we're butting our heads with Jesus. There are small ways. But into all of it, He looks and He speaks newness. It's this, follow me. The kingdom is at hand. Repent. Believe the gospel. You can be with me. You don't have to do that. So isn't it just as simple as Man, are, are, are we going to, in response to that call, are we going to allow our hearts to be hardened in response to that call, or are we going to repent and believe the gospel because we know that Jesus is doing something new and that it's infinitely better? Listen, this resurgence and revival that I think needs to take place in the American church context that will be so beautiful, it starts with this issue right here starts with this issue right here. And it starts not even in individual churches. It starts in the hearts of individuals within those churches like you and me. Where we're like, enough enough is enough. I'm not going to give myself continually over to this idolatry. I'm I'm going to follow Him. He's better. Church, I want this for us. I want this for me. God is doing a new thing. He's doing a new thing, and it's beautiful. Let's pray. Father, please, even as I say these things, God, I know that there is nothing inside of us, God, that is adequate to change our own hearts. There's nothing that's adequate to run after you with this kind of passion and zeal, God. And so we pray, as Jesus instructed, God, we pray that you would help us in our unbelief. Cause our hearts to come alive to the newness that Jesus is speaking into us, God. And give us the ability to run and chase after that. God, I pray that our, God, the anthem of our hearts would be Paul's words in Philippians 1, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. God, may we desire nothing but Him, knowing that You'll give us everything we need. <laughs> to glorify you and to live lives that are full of joy and peace and contentment. You'll give it all to us, God, even before we know we need stuff because you're good. That we would just be content in you and you'll give us everything we need. May it be so, God, and may it be so here at Red Tree. 
May it be so in my heart. May it be so in the hearts of people here. God, may it be so, so that Christ is lifted high in this community, God. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.